Hey everyone, thanks for taking time to listen to our latest sermon. A sermon about the life of a king named David and the truths we can take from it on living a meaningful life ourselves. Before it plays, I want to update you on two things. First, we have built a new website to serve as a central hub for our church. The site is creekside.me and on it you can subscribe to our newsletter, sign up for an event, donate money, and even let us know how God has used this sermon to impact you. The other thing that I want to let you know about is that our sermon videos are now available on our website. If you'd rather watch this sermon than listen to it, just visit wilsonville.church David. Again, thanks for listening. I hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. When I am dealing with something difficult, I don't like people to come up to me and say God has a plan or to offer, you know, one of like a million other cliches that I think, honestly, Christians are the worst about. And, and there's a lot of truth in, in the idea that God has a plan, but really kind of all you hear when, you know, something bad has happened is, is don't be sad because God has a plan. You're like, well, I'm sad. You know, I mean, God having a plan is not going to change that. And I just want to assure you that this sermon is not that. Uh, this sermon is not God has a plan. It's going to be okay. Don't worry about it or anything like that. In fact, uh, in the story that we'll look at today, we're going to see incredible tragedy in the life of David, but we're also going to see really incredible mourning on David's part and the people's part. This is not David being fake and saying everything's okay, God has a plan. This is David saying, this is terrible uh, and despite that, this is how I'm going to live my life. Uh, we know this, I, I think, uh, when you look at your life and when you think about people who have made an impact, one of the things that you, that you could see if you stopped to think about it for a moment, if you, if you just considered it for a little bit, is, is just this simple idea that when life becomes very hard, the way that people respond to that will determine the level of impact they have on those around them. And you can probably all think of people in your lives that, that uh, hopefully Christian people in your lives even, that they've faced terrible adversity, terrible sorrow, terrible tragedy, and you walk, watch how they go through it, and, and you watch how they live their lives, and you go, wow, right? I mean, wow, and I want to be more like them, and I, I'm, I'm encouraged in my own faith, and I'm more excited about serving God because they were able to do it through, through tragedy. And, and this morning, we're going to look at, at this awful event in David's life. I mean, it's, it's terrible. I, it's uh, something that I'll never go through. And, uh, and the way that David responds, I think, is the thing that you admire in people when you look at them and say, wow, look how they went through this. And, and the, the illustration that I, that I just, I think, is most appropriate because it's really what this is about. It's hardly an illustration for David. Uh, but, but we all have these, these things that are the crowns of our, our lives, right? And um, it, whether it be your kids or your job or your financial situation because you've worked really hard for your money 
or whether it be your athletic ability or your music ability or some other ability, whether it be a collection that you have or how well kept your house is or how big your house is or your car or whatever it is. We all have these things that, that are your crowns. I'm not going to put it on because it wouldn't illustrate very well because you say, I don't want a crown if it looks like that, you know. Um, but we all have these, these things that, that are the crowns of our lives. And when we look in the mirror, and let's not pretend this isn't true because we're Christians and my only crown is God. I mean, when we look in the mirror and when we feel good about ourselves, a lot of times it's connected to, you know, this thing, this crown in your life, whatever it is, your accomplishments, your objects, the things that you have. And really one of the most important parts of living a life of impact, positive impact that has... Meaning that goes beyond just your own existence that comes and goes as you're born and you die. One of the most important aspects of that is how you will deal with the moments when your, when your crown is crushed. It's one of the most important things. And I know that as I, as I talk to you today, some of you are, are right there right now. I mean, it's like, as I talk, as we think about over the last four or five weeks, and we'll continue for a couple more weeks here, like living a life of impact for you, it's like, Chad, like I'm just dealing with stuff, right? Like that's great, you know, for you to think about because your life is pretty good right now. You just had your second kid. Things are looking positive, you know. Uh, but, but I'm dealing with this pain, how can I make an impact? You know, I'm just keeping my head above water. I can't, I mean, God's glory, like, well, I'm, just, I'm just barely getting by. And, and this story we're going to look at just says, look, you're at the perfect time, the perfect moment to increase your impact, but you have to respond in, in the right way. As I, as I said last week, uh, and we talked about this story in the sermon last week, you can go back and listen to that if you didn't hear it, but David commits this incredible sin where he sleeps with another man's wife. Uh, he tries to cover it up. Ultimately, he murders the husband of that woman, Bathsheba, uh, her husband being Uriah. He, he has him killed. He kills him. And, uh, and I said last week that, that we can see this split in David's life where, where it seems like everything is on the upward trend the upward climb and then there's this incredible moment of sin and then from that point on it's this incredible decline and uh, in second samuel 12 10 and 11 nathan actually kind of predicts that things are going to go badly and remember there was this prophecy that's told right after david commits this sin this prophet comes to him and he convicts him terribly and and that was kind of the, the main point of the sermon last week that david responded well to this but but in the midst of it i didn't read this last week i mean this is what we read now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of uriah the hittite to be your own this is what the lord says out of your own household i am going to bring calamity on you this isn't like hey if you change your mind and you repent and you ask for forgiveness, then it will be okay. This is like, look, you sinned, it's going to be bad for you and your family. 
And yet, and I think this is so cool, as we saw last week, David's like, I sinned, and he goes about trying to live for God again. And, and we even see in that passage I read last week in 1 Kings 5, I believe I didn't write it down this week, that it says about David, like, he lived for God his entire life except for that one event with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. And so we see that, that despite the fact that David has promised calamity coming upon his household because of the sin, he's like, I'm going to live for God anyway. And I just, just a quick timeline of David's life, and this is uh, almost exactly from just, I, I Googled like chronology of David's life, and, and, and there's, you know, sub points to all of these, but this breakdown really shows uh, this, this turning point in David's life. So just notice like how good it looks, and then phew, downhill. David born, David and Goliath, you know that story. David of a fugitive from Saul, that's not so great, but David still looks really good and gains friends and is moving towards the kingdom. David becomes king. David's kingdom established. That's a charmed life, right? I mean, that's pretty good. You're anointed king at a really young age. You defeat a giant. You're famous. You're a warrior. And then you sin with Bathsheba. Amnon rapes Tamar. That's one of his sons raping one of his daughters. Uh... Absalom kills Amnon in response to that. Absalom leaves Jerusalem. He's exiled from Jerusalem and then he returns to Jerusalem. Absalom, in the story we're going to look at today, wins the hearts of Israel and becomes king in Hebron. Absalom killed Sheba's rebellion, which is another rebellion. David becomes exhausted in a Philistine battle, almost dies in what people believe are the hands of Goliath's brothers. Uh, Adonijah and Solomon vie for the throne and David dies. That's rough, right? That's rough. And yet, in the midst of all that, David continues to have a great impact on the world. He writes psalms. He develops a plan to build the temple, and the story we'll look at next week. I mean, David continues to have an impact, and it's the things that we see in the story today that allow for him to do just that. And before we look at that, though, I just let's just be real, because it's easy to go, oh, David, just easy for him, you know, he's David. But for me, and the people that I, I know and, and that have left church and that have rejected God, the response is this, like, I sinned, God, through people, called me on it, there were consequences, I'm going to turn my back on God because I don't like how he treated me. That's a pretty normal story, right? I mean, you've probably heard that story if you've been in church for any amount of time. Like, eh, God, I know I did that, but God, eh, I don't like how you dealt with me because of it, and so I'm going to reject you even more, and I won't live for you at all. That's almost the normal response that David could have given, but, but thankfully he doesn't. Because the way that we deal with impact and difficult, or excuse me, the, day, the way we deal with difficulty will determine our impact and, and how David deals with it here is quite incredible. In 2 Samuel 15, 1 through 6, we see kind of the setup. In the course of time, Absalom, one of David's sons, provided himself with a chariot and horses with 50 men to run ahead of him. 
He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone would come with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case would come to me, and I would see that they receive justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him Absalom would reach out his hand take hold of him and kiss him Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice and so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel this is his son this is David's son and, and it's quite an easy story to understand right he is schmoozing people in order to gain a following because he wants to move forward and, and this is just uh, conjecture but I could just see how this story played out so easily Absalom as I said earlier he killed his brother he's exiled from the land he comes back he has this awkward kind of re-entrance into the city of Jerusalem things are weird between him and his dad as you can kind of imagine when you've killed one of your dad's other kids and then been exiled by your dad and now you're back and it was all trickery to get him back it's just all kinds of weird right and I could see how David is now dealing with a lot of stuff. He's married too many women. He wasn't supposed to do that. He's got a lot of kids. They're not getting along. And I can see, and you know this, how family life is starting to affect his professional life in our terminology, right? And all of a sudden, he doesn't have enough time to deal with all the judgments that he has to deal with, which, by the way, is not all the judgments of the land. It's just probably the kingly judgments, like there's a taxation issue or there's a military issue, and David needs to respond to these things, but he's got a lot going on because of the decisions that he's made. And I can see, and this isn't in the story, but I can just see Absalom coming to him and saying, Dad, I got an idea. Appoint me judge. Let me go down there, let me sit, and I'll make the decisions for people. And I could see David going, well, you killed one of my kids, and this is a little weird. Mm, I'm going to pass, you know. Or David's just not answering him. That's the way to go, right? And you can see, like, how that could happen. And then Absalom's like, well, if you're not going to appoint me judge, I'm going to take your power. And so he goes down there, and he acts kind of like judge, saying, this is great. You should win this court case. Oh, you should win this court case too, even if it's people that are on the opposite sides, giving them a kiss, saying, I'm sorry that my dad's not here to take care of this. And over time, he, it works. I mean, he wins the hearts of the people. And it takes a while, as we see in verses 7 through 12, at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Gesher and Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, go in peace. So we went to Hebron. The, and then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithopel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, to come from Gilah, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing. So here's the plan. He's going to go to Hebron, which is very strategic. This used to be the capital city of Israel. It was the place where David was anointed king. It was the place where Absalom himself was born. It used to be the center of power. And David had 
become king and said, we're going to move all this because God wanted him to, but we're going to move all this to Jerusalem. And you could see how the people in Hebron would not be so favorable towards David, right? And so Absalom goes to his place of birth, a place that probably has an issue with David anyway, and his plan is to take these 200 people who are probably uh, dignitaries in some way, they know nothing about it, and he's going to announce himself king with a trumpet blast, and, and he puts these people really in a hostage situation where if they say, wait, we're on David's side, then they die, and, and if they say, well, we're on Absalom's side, then they've committed treason. It's a sticky situation that they're brought into, but he announces himself king, and he has enough followers and enough power, he is... He has schmoozed enough people in order to make this work. And in the next two verses, 2 Samuel 15, 13, and 14, we read, A messenger came and told David, The hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. Now, David doesn't want to die, and he doesn't want his family to die, but this is kind of the first point, and it's not an important one compared to some of the others, but I, I just, I, I like what David does here because, because I know that when I sometimes face difficulty, even the small difficulties of a day, things don't go my way, things are a little bit more difficult than I expected, the day's not going as planned, it's really easy to make bad decisions, isn't it? Just, I, I don't mean like ungodly decisions. I just mean bad, rash decisions. It's easy to be prideful and say, oh, well, I can overcome this. And, and I think for a lot of people that I know, especially men that I know, uh, it would have just been like, we can win this. You know, like, will, I mean, how dare my son try to overtake me? There's no way. But David just looks at the facts, and I, I like this about David. He looks at the facts, and he's like, we're going to lose and this city is going to be hurt because of us staying, and so we must leave. I love, I love that David lowers the pride, because sometimes in our pride, can't we just dig in and say, like, this will not happen, and I'm going to do what I want to do despite what, what, what the situation suggests. I'm going to dig in, and I'm going to fight, and I'm going to work harder, and I'm going to do my best. And, and oftentimes we leave just a bigger a bigger trail of hurt and pain and suffering. And, and David doesn't, and I like that. And so if there's a first point in this, it's like David doesn't make a stupid decision because of the tragedy that he's facing, and yet we often do. But there's bigger things, and so let's move to those. And 15 through 22, it says, The king's official, officials answered him, Your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. The king set out with his entire household following him, but he left 10 concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him, and they halted at the edge of the city. All his men marched past him, along with all the Carathites and the Pelathites and all the 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath, marched before the king. The king said to Ittai, the Gittite, why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You are a foreigner, an exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday, and today shall I make you wander about with us? When I do not know where I'm going, go back and take your people with you. May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness. But Ittai replied to the king, as surely as the Lord lives 
And as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King may be, whether it means life or death, there your servant will be. David said to Ittai, go ahead, march on. So Ittai the Gittite marched on with all his men and the families that were with him. Now this Ittai guy, who is a Gittite, one of the great sentences in the Bible as far as rhyming. Um, This is a Philistine. So uh, if you remember who else was a Philistine, this was Goliath. And basically, this is a Philistine from Gath. That's how they got their names, the Gittites. And they were either exiles or people who had willingly come to Jerusalem, said, we've been defeated, our land's been defeated, and so we will go there. And they're soldiers who are actually in charge of protecting the king. This guy, Ittai, is one of the leaders. He's like the leader in this little platoon that protects the king. And and sometimes, by the way, kings like to have foreigners be their bodyguards in this era of history because they would guess that these people weren't going to turn on them and try to take over uh, the kingship. And so uh, there's this group of Philistine men who are protecting David, and, and this is a beautiful story. Some people say this is one of the most beautiful kind of, of stories of just grace and showing another person kindness uh, in the Old Testament. David looks at him, and he needs these people. This is like hundreds of fighters, right? And he's running for his life, and they are not just fighters, they are good fighters. And, and he looks at the leader and says like, hey, you guys haven't been here that long. Yesterday is not literal, but like you haven't been here very long. Like, just go serve my son, the new king. And I love it. Because tragedy can make us so unkind to other people, can it not? Like, when we face difficulties in our lives, it's so easy to just feel like, man, I'm being beat up. I'm not going to be nice to anybody else. I'm going to use people. I'm going to, to make sure that people feel my pain. Don't you know at least other, if you're not that person, you know other people when they're having a bad day, everybody else is having a bad day too because they're going to complain about it and make you feel bad and you're going to say something and they're going to jump on you. And, and David here in just this incredible moment of saying, look, you're a foreigner, You're basically in slavery to me. I could tell you to do whatever you want, but I realize the better thing for you, the fair thing to do, the right thing to do is to let you go back to Jerusalem. And I just would say that like, while you shouldn't make stupid decisions in the midst of of tragedy when when your crown has been crushed you shouldn't make stupid decisions. You should also be focused on making kind decisions even if it's even if it's being kind at your own sake, even if it hurts you. And David does that here. It's one of the reasons that I think we can look at these stories and say, what an incredible man, even though he's dealing with something that that in some ways is a consequence of his own sin. He's looking at others and saying, I care about you. And Ittai cared about him. And I get that some of you are dealing with painful, just hard things. But you should be kind anyway. And then in 2 Samuel 15, 23, we see like this is not a happy moment and nobody's pretending it's a happy moment. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. This feels like absolute rock bottom for David, right? I mean, he is leaving the city that he spent his whole life climbing to be the king in. 
And he's walking out as the people who are for him, who love him, who wanted him as their king as they weep while he passes by. And then we read in verses 24 through 29, Zadok was there too. And all the Levites who were with him carrying the ark of the covenant of God, they sat down the ark of God and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, do you understand? Go back to the city with my blessing. Take your son Ahimez with you and also Abiathar's son Jonathan. You and Abiathar return with your two sons. I will wait at the fords in the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar took the ark of God back to Jerusalem and stayed there. Now it's hard because the ark is not really a thing to us. It's hard to really fathom how incredible this is, what David does here. And, and, and I mentioned the ark last week, but the ark was both, uh, and I don't know if I communicated this clearly enough last week, but it was both like the symbol of God's presence in the Israelite nation, but also beyond the symbol, it was like the actual place of God's strongest, most manifest presence. It, it sat in the center of the tabernacle early on. I mean, if people touched it and not just the, the little poles that were on the side of it, there's like a story like this in, in the Old Testament. A guy actually died from touching it because God's presence was so strong there. And more important to this story, when the ark went with the troops of Jerusalem, they almost always, not always, but almost always had success in battle. You could be sure that as David picks this thing up, like they're in a, in a rush to get out of the city and David's like, hey, don't forget the ark. Something inside of David's head is like, if we take this with us, we're gonna win. It's going to be okay. This is the thing that assures David victory in a lot of ways. And another piece of background information is really important. David, early on in his life, had brought the ark into Jerusalem. And he was so excited about it that he ran along next to it, dancing, even naked, dancing naked, celebrating the presence of God moving into the city of God, the capital city, Jerusalem of Israel and, and his wife in fact in that story was mad at him because she looked out and he's like this guy's become so undignified and David is like I'll become even more undignified than this to celebrate God and, and I just I see this incredible moment where, where yes David sends these people back as spies but that doesn't seem to be the, the driving force behind what happens in this section of this story David steps out of the city with the ark and, and it's like something clicks in his head. This is supposed to be in the city. I could just picture David remembering those moments where he was so excited that God's place, his presence was going to be where it should be. And David is like, we have to send this back. And what's so profound about that is David is a warrior who has seen the, the power of God's presence in battle. And he knows, he knows that to take it with him is probably better 
for his long-term success in this tragedy. But as David said earlier, when the ark came into the city, he was willing to become even more undignified. And in these moments, I mean, he has lost all dignity. The crown has literally been taken from him. He is walking out. The people are weeping. He is weeping, as we'll see it in just a second. And David says, look, no, 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 no. For God to be glorified, the ark, his presence needs to be in the city. And so it doesn't matter what happens to me. You go back, you priest, you take the ark back with you. David places the glory of God over his own protection or the fixing of the problem that he's facing. And we've talked a lot about that in this, in this sermon series, that for David and the main, the, the main thing that made him the incredible man that he was is that his, his almost entire life was driven by wanting to see God glorified, by wanting God to look good, by wanting God to be worshipped, by wanting people to see how great and majestic and awesome and good and loving and powerful God is. And in the midst in the midst of this terrible tragedy, one of the worst of his life, David is about to pull the ark out of the city and he stops and he says, wait, wait. I want God's glory more than I want my protection. And he sends the ark back to where it belongs. But in order to do that, and we've talked, we talked about this when we talked about David slaying Goliath. In order to do that, you must be able to trust God with your life. And that's what David says. Like, look, we'll send the ark back. People are like, are you sure? Are you sure you want that to happen? He's like, look, if I'm able to see it again, that's okay. And if I'm not, that's okay too, because I trust God with everything. And I'll tell you, when, you're, when the crown of your life, when the crowns of your life are being destroyed or ripped from you or uh, whatever it might be, tarnished, when that happens, your ability to want to glorify God is going to ultimately come down to how much you trust God. Because, because we, we know this, right? Like our initial reaction Our gut instinct is to hold on to the crowns with everything we have, even if it means God is not glorified at all. We will turn our backs on God. We will reject God. We will run from God. We will do whatever we have to do to hold more tightly to the crowns that we feel like we're losing. And David says, I'll glorify God. If he takes my crown from me, it's okay. Because I trust him. And all the while, and this is where, so, so that's all for you who just, like, I'm going to come up with a better plan. I'm going to do what it takes to succeed, and I don't care about God in the midst of tragedy because I got a job to do, and I will overcome. So all that was for you. But there's this other side of people that I know that frankly bother me more. And it's the people who are like, I trust God. I'm not going to do anything. You probably know people like this. Like, I have no money. But I'm not going to look for a job. I'm just going to pray. And you're like, just look for a job. Like, what are you doing? And David, in the, here in this story, he's like, it's all about God's glory. I'll do the stupid thing. I'll do the undignified thing to glorify him. But oh, by the way, since you're taking the ark anyway, let's come up with a plan. You be my spies. 
I think that Christians, not many, but some, probably like a 5% to 95%. That's just a rough estimate in my life. There's like 95% of Christians, well, some people get it right. So I'll go like 95 and 5. 5% of people are like, I'll forget about God when tragedy strikes. 5% of people are like, I'll forget about doing anything productive uh, when, when tragedy, I'll do it right. And then like 90% of people are like, who cares, you know? Um, but, but this is important right here. David wants and, and does what it takes to glorify God. But, but at the same time, David puts a plan into place to overcome the tragedy. And I'm telling you, God is not honored when you lay down and get knocked over and don't put a plan into place to pick yourself back up. God is not glorified by that at all. You will not live a life of impact if you're like, I'll just pray about it. If you say, I'm not going to pray about it, you won't live a life of impact either. But if you just say, I'm going to pray about it and not do anything, you won't live a life of impact. And so as you're seeking God's glory and you're trusting him, you need to come up with a plan. And David does that. And we'll see that even more in just a few verses. In verses 30 and 31, we read, but David continued up the Mount of Olives. Notice this, please notice this, weeping as he went. He is not pretending that it's okay. He's weeping as, it went, as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. He is undignified at this point. All the people with him covered their heads too and they were weeping as they went up. Now David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. David doesn't pretend everything's okay. And as I just mentioned, he prays. And prayer, and Brandon said this earlier, I mean, we cannot as a church stress the importance of prayer enough. We have minimized prayer in the modern American church, in the modern American Christian culture. We have relegated it to something that we should do in the morning. And you know if you've been around for a long time, this idea, this, this language that I should pray more just is almost heartbreaking to me because, because that shouldn't be how we think of prayer. Prayer should be something that we want to do more because we realize that prayer moves the hand, uh, that moves the world, that prayer matters, that God works as we pray pray and even if we can't understand all that and why God responds to prayers God does respond to prayers and if you've been around Christianity for a long time you've seen God respond to prayer and and it's sad to me that we have relegated it to something that we ought to do more often when when we know and we see in the Bible and in our lives that it is the most important thing we can do. And I'll tell you that you can't impact God, impact the world for God or impact the world in a positive way if you're not willing to pray, if you don't make prayer important. David has more going on here than perhaps you have going on in your life. He's literally running from his kid and a bunch of people who would like to take his life. And he prays. And it's crazy because immediately, and we're not going to read this part, immediately somebody shows up and he says, hey, you go be another advisor and you, you trick this king and you, you mess up this uh, council of Ahithophel. You, you do this. And God like immediately answers his prayer and it's part of the reason that David eventually will become king again. You must be a person of prayer 
And I know that we fall on like different, in different places when it comes to our, our prayers. But, but some of you just, when tragedy strikes, you don't pray. And it's easy for prayer to bring us, or tragedy to bring us back to prayer. And I've seen that and that's important. But there are other people that I know that prayer becomes the last resort when tragedy strikes. If I try everything else and it doesn't work, then maybe I'll say a quick prayer. But for David, prayer is just a part of the solution. And what I want you to understand this morning is that when your crown is crushed or taken from you or tarnished, it actually increases your opportunity for impact. But the question is, are you going to respond to the tragedy in a godly way or in just a human way? If you'll respond to the hardships, the difficulties, the hurts, the pains, the struggles in a godly way, then you will have a greater impact than you ever could have had if you didn't go through those things in the first place. I mean, David avoids stupidity and he remained kind and he sought the glory of God over his own protection and he trusted God and he came up with a strategy and he mourned and he prayed. But you have to ask, like, am I going to do this in a godly way or just a human way? And if you say just a human way, then man, tragedy will ruin your impact. You just won't have one anymore. But if you'll say a godly way, I mean, your impact will just be magnified. Everything we've talked about in this series, it will be like, it will just be magnified because people will look at you and say, how can they get through that? How can they deal with that so well? And you can say, it's because of my relationship with God. And for me, and I think much of what we've seen in this series I can preach to myself. Uh, but I think I deal with tragedy pretty well. Um, I've dealt with plenty of it in my life, and, and frankly, I'm good at it. And I come from a family that's pretty good at it. And let me, let me just tell you, I think, why, what it all boils down to. It all boils down to what we call the gospel. It's the story of what Jesus did for humankind. We believe and I believe and this is what gets me through tragedy in a way that I think allows for my impact to be increased in the midst of it. What I believe is that God was in heaven and he looked down at me who's a wretched sinner and, and he then stepped out of heaven. He was born of a virgin. He lived a completely sinless life, a completely perfect life. And at the end of that life, he died an incredibly brutal death, not just physically, but spiritually, where he actually had the weight of my sin and everybody's sins laid upon him. He really faced hell when he was on the cross. And he died, and then he got out of the grave three days later. And you say, how does that knowledge, how does that belief at all connect to me dealing with difficulty? And I would offer in so many ways. I mean, when I'm dealing with something that is just so hard that I don't think I can get through, I look at Jesus as my example. And I'm like, Jesus, like, 
you dealt with so much more for me. And when I'm dealing with things that are, that are the consequence of my own sin, I look at Jesus and say, Jesus, I know that even though I did this and I messed this up, you've offered me forgiveness. And even more, even more, when I'm dealing with something hard, I know that because of what Jesus did on the cross, someday I won't have to deal with hardship anymore. I mean, Jesus says, someday there will be no more sorrow and no more tears and no more pain. And I look at that cross and I think, because you did that for me, someday all of this will just be a speed bump in eternity. And it allows for me, I think, to do a pretty good job. And, I, and if you're first time here, I'm not much of a bragger when I preach, but I do this pretty well. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not an idiot when I face tragedy and I'm, I stay pretty kind to people and some of you can attest to that and I, I do think I try to glorify God even at my own cost and I do trust God to get me through and I, I do find a strategy and I mourn, but I pray at the same time and it all comes back to this belief that Jesus gave his life so that I might have a better one. And so this morning, I just this is what I ask of you. If you're facing tragedy, look at the cross and ask this very simple question. Am I dealing with this tragedy in light of what Jesus did for me when he died? And if you're not, then fix it. Pray. Say, God, help me. And if you are, awesome. You're going to make an incredible impact through that. Now, if you're not dealing with tragedy, I just want this to be in your head because it will come, right? We all know it's going to come. When your crown is crushed or your crown is tarnished or your crown is taken away from you, you need to be prepared to say, how do I respond to this in light of what Jesus did for me? Because if you will, your impact will be magnified by the tragedy, not taken away. Psalm 3, 1 through 8 is how I want to finish this and partly because our next series is on the Psalms and so I've wanted to include these Psalms but this Psalm was written uh, when this happened, when Absalom stole the kingdom from David and I think it's appropriate that we don't finish the story today. You can go read and see if David ever gets the kingship back. I already told you but, but you can go read but, but this is what David says in the midst of this tragedy. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Let me pray for you, Lord. I know that people in front of me are, they're hurting, God. And the things that are hurting them, can make them feel like they, they can't do the things that they want to do for you, God. Because they're barely, and, and I'm, not, I'm not discrediting this, I'm, I agree with it, God, they're barely keeping their heads above water, God. But I pray, God, that this, this sermon would, would compel them, Lord, 
to live for you in the midst of it. Because people are watching them, Lord. The the non-Christians in their lives are watching them, God. The young people in their lives that that are fellow Jesus followers are watching them. And Lord, I pray that they would handle those tragedies in a way that remembers your gospel, what you did, God, on the cross. Lord, I also pray, God, for those who are hurting and just feel broken, that you would, that you would provide peace and comfort and encouragement and all of those things, Lord. I trust that you want to. And Jesus, I pray this this morning, and, and I believe this can be true. I pray, God, that you would use the hardships in our lives and the response that we have to them, God, to bring others to salvation, to strengthen others, God, and ultimately to bring glory to your holy name because we know, God, that you're the only way we can get through, God, these things. This is why we lift our eyes to the maker of the mountains we can't climb, God, because we can't climb them. So help us, God, and let us bring glory to your name. I pray these things in your name. Amen.